post-war boom was over for Britain. And some were even saying that Britishness was dead, or at least dying. The 1970s were a decade often remembered for their social and political uncertainties. The troubles in Northern Ireland, and IRA attacks and the subsequent fear and fear-mongering in Britain, which were all rampant. The miners were striking, the economy crashed, and severe inflation meant that the IMF had to bail Britain out. The nation's youth, brought up by parents who would have still been carrying the social and psychological trauma of World War II, saw little hope in the future of Britain, for themselves anyway. In 1974, Jim Callaghan, who would later become Prime Minister, told colleagues, quote, Our place in the world is shrinking. Our economic comparisons grow worse. Long-term political influence depends on economic strength, and that is running out. If I were a young man, I should emigrate. End quote. A band called Strand, formed by three teenagers called Paul Jones, Steve Cook, and Wally Nightingale, were jamming together on instruments they'd stolen from concerts. They often hung out with other kids like them at a shop in Chelsea, London, called Too Fast to Live, Too Young to Die, partly owned by clothes designer and general creative visionary Malcolm McLaren and his partner, Vivienne Westwood. They were on the cutting edge of this social fragmentation and changed the name of their shop to Sex, selling clothing designed for the disaffected youth. It was a good name change. Sex sells. Through the support of McLaren and Westwood, the band would kick out some members like Wally Nightingale, bring in others like John Lydon and Sid Vicious, and change their name a few times, eventually settling on that for which they would be forever known and remembered. The Sex Pistols would kick off one of the great anti-establishment movements of the modern age. How real and effective it was, however is definitely a matter of interpretation. Welcome to Stuff What You Tell Me. This episode is called Compelling and Selling Rebellion. It's brought to you by Profanities, so be warned. But it's not 1977, so it's no big fucking deal, right? During this period of social unrest, 21-year-old John Lydon was feeling fed up with the establishment. Lydon was a regular at sex, where he would often be seen wearing a Pink Floyd t-shirt with I Hate scribbled on the front above the band's name. One day whilst there, he ended up auditioning for the Sex Pistols by screaming along to an Alice Cooper song on the store's jukebox. McLaren later said of the performance, quote, he sung it like the hunchback of Notre Dame, end quote. It was attitude, not talent, that they were looking for. Suddenly, Lydon was the lead singer of a band and had a new pseudonym, one which he'd received due to his terrible dental hygiene, Johnny Rotten. The Sex Pistols gigged around for about a year, gaining a cult following through their notorious antics, 
which included smashing gear that they had borrowed from other bands, walking off stage, and being at the cutting edge of the new fashion pioneered by McLaren and Westwood. This fashion style was basically to look menacing. Dark clothes, lots of leather, makeup, big safety pins, punk fashion. The band released their first single, Anarchy in the UK, in October 1976, to modest success. It peaked at 38 on the UK singles charts. The song's lyrics begin with the immortal line, I am an antichrist, I am an anarchist, which might not seem like it rhymes. Well, it kind of goes more like, Julian, do you want to step in here? I am an antichrist. I am an anarchist. It's an amazing feat of lyrical dexterity. And it doesn't get much more punk than deliberately mispronouncing words to help make a rhyme. The song seems to be advocating violence and anarchy, obviously, but it also comes across as perhaps one of the greatest musical trolls of all time, shaking up the bland and staid British musical scene at the time. The Sex Pistols began to build a reputation that showed they didn't want to just prance around on stage like Mick Jagger was doing, What they wanted to do was, well, as they put it, just get pissed and destroy. Like we said, it's all about the attitude. A week after the single was released, the Sex Pistols were invited to appear on the Today Show as last-minute replacements for Queen. Their appearance on television quickly descended into chaos. Host Bill Grundy, for some reason, began to provoke them. Grundy is your typical 70s English TV presenter, the type usually seen with a cigarette and an ashtray next to them, as well as a tumbler of whiskey or something like that. He starts off by pointing out that they are nearly as wasted as he is, setting the groundwork for what would become a fairly confrontational interview. He accuses them of hypocrisy, pointing out that the £40,000 record deal that they'd just taken was against their anti-materialist stance. They point out that they've spent it all at the boozer. He asks how they see themselves compared to Bach, Mozart, and Beethoven. Not a very reasonable comparison, but they respond that all of those composers, quote, really turn us on, end quote. When Grundy says, what if they turn other people on? Johnny Rotten gives a mumbled response where he drops the word shit, which he is asked to repeat by Grundy. Grundy then turns his attention to the girls standing behind the group. He flirts pretty outrageously with one of them, suggesting that perhaps they can meet after the show. At this point, guitarist Steve Jones goes off. Quote, You dirty sod, you dirty old man, you dirty bastard, you dirty fucker. What a fucking rotter, end quote. It's some seriously funny primetime TV. British kids learnt a lot that evening. After this interview was aired live and uncensored around 6pm, the switchboard of the TV station was inundated with complaints. One caller even apparently kicked in his new 380-pound television set because of the outrage. This is an outrage. Uh, Bill Grundy was suspended for two weeks, and his TV career never fully recovered. The Sex Pistols were dropped from their record label, EMI. 
For a long time, Leiden had been thinking about a song idea. He said that the idea, quote, was running around in my mind for months, long before joining the Sex Pistols. The idea of being angry, of the indifference of the Queen to the population, and the aloofness and indifference to us as people. I had to work on building sites to get the money to go to college because I wanted to further my education, and yet I was taxed to fuck. Why am I paying for that silly cow who couldn't give a shit about me? Along come the pistols, and just one morning over baked beans, I wrote it down in one go, on mum and dad's kitchen table. End quote. This song would become the Sex Pistols' most famous, God Save the Queen. Over the next six months, the band faced various setbacks, including being signed and dropped by A&M Records in the span of one week, uh, after an incident involving smashing a toilet bowl, trailing blood over the office, and a death threat, the label had actually already pressed 25,000 copies of God Save the Queen in anticipation of its release, but these were almost all destroyed after the contract was prematurely terminated. In May 1977, however, the Sex Pistols signed a deal with Richard Branson's Virgin Record Company, who were more than happy to go ahead with releasing the single. The workers at the pressing plant, however, were not, and they went on strike in protest at the image on the record sleeve. This was a cutout of Queen Elizabeth II's face, with her features mainly blocked out by the band's name and the title, in the style of a ransom note. The song's lyrics, in effect, call British monarchy a fascist institution that doesn't care for its poorest and majority of people. They posit that there is no future for the people under this regime. Today, few would really blink an eye about this kind of image or the song's content. But back then, oh boy. In 1977, people were so angered by this that they were willing to refuse to work in defense of the poor queen being so slandered. 1977 was a big year for the British monarch because it marked the 25th anniversary of her coronation. To celebrate the Silver Jubilee, a huge boat parade was planned to go down the River Thames in central London. A display of all the majesty and pageantry of the realm was going to happen right in the city centre. Virgin and the Sex Pistols planned the release of their new inflammatory single to time perfectly with the lead-up to the regal celebrations. On June the 7th, the official holiday for the Jubilee, McLaren and Branson organised for the band to play a gig on the Thames, on a boat fittingly called the Queen Elizabeth. The event was a display of unplanned chaos and mastery of publicity and trolling, at once mocking the Queen's boat parade, planned for two days later, the monarchy, the wider establishment, and the sheeple who would be lining the banks and waving their Union Jacks with pride. Various music journalists, industry figures, and groupies were all on board the Queen Elizabeth with the band. They were all participating in a blend of high-octane anti-establishment fervor, music industry commercialism, and big bags of speed. The boat left the pier at about 6.30pm and it headed downstream. And having passed through the very central part of London, they turned back around and unveiled a huge banner which read, HMS Queen Elizabeth welcomes Sex Pistols. 
their single God Save the Queen out now. There's great footage online of this boat trip filmed on board. In it, Leiden has just had half a gram of speed and the camera focuses a lot on his face and his eyes. You can really see that he's just had half a gram of speed. He seems a world apart from all the acolytes and others also in the shot, milling around and just talking shit. Suddenly, he just goes, Ever get the feeling you've been trapped? Having come about, and as they went under Tower Bridge again, their boat started to be followed by police launches. So perhaps Leiden's instincts were good and they were being trapped. Definitely check out this video online. It gives a great idea of how the experience may have been for some of those on board. Eventually, the band started playing. The feedback from their amps was awful, and those bearing witness would have had to obstinately endure the squealing of these amps. And yet, they all continued to make their collective stand against conformity. Here was a band on a boat in the cold summer weather performing with a bassist, Sid Vicious, who couldn't play the bass, and a singer, John Lydon, who couldn't sing, and nonetheless, here they wrote themselves into the annals of rock history, serving up an iconic moment that could only have been conjured in that time, in that place, by these people. They kicked off with their first and best song, Anarchy in the UK, just as the boat passed the Houses of Parliament. It became a performance for the ages, bringing together and expressing the cultural youth angst of the time in one great symbolic act of middle finger raising. John Savage, renowned music journalist and writer, said, quote, The atmosphere on the boat was paranoid and claustrophobic, but also very exciting. They were by far the best I ever saw them that day. You can't beat the Sex Pistols, Jubilee Weekend, Anarchy in the UK, outside Parliament, end quote. The band continued with God Save the Queen and others, but Leiden got really fed up with the feedback and refused to sing for a bit whilst the others went on. Perhaps it was the paranoid and claustrophobic atmosphere, but there was a scuffle on board between a photographer and an observer, and although the band played through the weird tension, soon they were all being ordered by floating police on boats with megaphones to return to the dock from whence they'd come. Alan Jones, another highly respected music journo, was also there. He described the scene. Quote, The police launches are circling us now. Searchlights aimed at us. Someone with a megaphone shouting at us, presumably ordering us back to the pier, where ranks of surly coppers are waiting. The thought of kicking punk ass, an entertaining notion after a long day on Jubilee duty. End quote. The boat returned to the pier. The power was cut and the bar closed. The owner had had enough, and once docked, everybody was told to leave. Defiance, though, had taken hold of them, and drummer Paul Cook picked up and kept on smashing out a beat. Richard Branson, having been responsible for renting the boat, not to mention signing the band to Virgin, refused to leave. There was a general standoff. Although some of the defiant punks defied the defiance of their fellow defiant punks and started to trickle off the boat to go and be defiant elsewhere. More and more police surrounded the boat until they finally boarded en masse. Alan Jones again, quote, 
You can see the truncheons being unbuckled and things start getting ugly in a hurry. The police now thundering up the gangplanks, swarming into the crowd. Malcolm McLaren goes down in front of me and a couple of us scoop him up before the police close in on him. You fucking fascist bastards, he yells at them and is promptly dragged behind a souvenir kiosk, beaten up and arrested. One of 11 people from the boat trip who end up that night in jail. End quote. The boat ride might have ended in chaos, but the publicity it generated only helped to bolster the band's growing notoriety, as well as sales for God Save the Queen. The single sold at least 150,000 copies in a week and a half, which should have easily taken it to number one position on the British charts. The song, however, was banned by the BBC and censored from almost every independent radio station because of fears that it would cause offence. It was officially listed by BBC at number two, behind Rod Stewart's very appropriately named I Don't Want to Talk About It. Rod Stewart was obviously capturing the mood of the establishment in such an apt title. One singles chart really didn't want to talk about it, since they kept the number two line blank. It seems like the establishment just wanted the Sex Pistols and the Punks to disappear. Here's what Bernard Brooke Partridge, man with the least punk name ever and conservative member of the Greater London Council and chairman of the Arts Committee from 1977, said of the Sex Pistols and the other punk groups beginning to emerge onto the public scene. Quote, Most of these groups would be vastly improved by sudden death. The worst of the punk groups, I suppose, currently are the Sex Pistols. They are unbelievably nauseating. They are the antithesis of humankind. I would like to see somebody dig a very, very large, exceedingly deep hole and drop the whole bloody lot down it. End quote. Excessive drug use within the punk scene certainly suggests that at least some of them had found some exceedingly deep holes. The punks as a movement weren't going anywhere, but the Sex Pistols themselves wouldn't last long. They were unable to play gigs because of their reputation, so had to perform under the pseudonym Spots, Sex Pistols on Tour Secretly, and Johnny Rotten was even attacked at knife point by a gang in front of a club in London. The band released their only album, Never Mind the Bollocks, Here's the Sex Pistols, in October 1977, which yet again caused a furor due to the use of the word bollocks in the title. The 70s was such an innocent time. Not long after, in January 1978, the band broke up. The results of their brief chaotic moment in the sun, however, still reverberate through pop culture today. And never mind the bollocks, sits at number 41 in Rolling Stone magazine's list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. When it was released, Nevermind the Bollocks was at the centre of an obscenity case. Police had moved in on Virgin Records stores and attempted to make them take down posters for the album, threatening the store with prosecution for indecency, as stipulated by the 1899 Indecent Advertisements Act. Although the case was ultimately unsuccessful, the presiding judge said in his ruling that, quote, Much as my colleagues and I wholeheartedly deplore the vulgar exploitation of the worst instincts of human nature for the purchases of commercial profits by both you and your company, we must reluctantly find you not guilty 
of each of the four charges, end quote. It is incredible to think that this group of young, charged-up wannabe rockers existed for little more than two years, put out one album, managed to piss a lot of people off, and in doing all of this, cemented themselves in the records of music history, changed the landscape, in fact, of pop music and fashion, and left an indelible imprint on the modern world. And ever since that imprint was made, people have been analysing it. What were the Sex Pistols about? What did it all, and what does it all mean? Few people would say it was about just the music. McLaren himself said at one point that, quote, if people bought the records for the music, this thing would have died a death long ago, end quote. The music did come, however, from within a genuine context of legitimate youth and working class frustration. The Sex Pistols fundamentally changed the relationship between music, society, and politics in Britain, and therefore in all the countries across which the international punk subcultures have now spread. Forty years after their 1976 release of Anarchy in the UK, music journalist Colin Brennan wrote, quote, The Sex Pistols were the first to embrace chaos and nihilism as agents of change repurposing the protest song as a means for punks to register their discontent without offering anything in the way of a solution. Anarchy in the UK doesn't try to solve anybody's problems, nor does it propose anything more meaningful than small acts of violence against the state. I give a wrong time, stop a traffic line. Rotten almost jokingly threatens, aware that such microaggressions won't do anything to change the underlying power structures. But he doesn't care. And that's where anarchy gets its charge. After all, it's really Rotten's lack of conviction that's so frightening and thrilling. The notion that he's saying something just to get a rise out of people. That he and his ragtag bunch of misfits may not actually believe in anything at all. End quote. John Lydon himself sum this up in a far shorter fashion in 1977 when he said, quote, all we're trying to do is destroy everything, end quote. Obviously, this sentiment was not theirs alone, but spoke to the feelings of many like them, a disenfranchised demographic of the public who would buy their albums, posters, concert tickets, as well as the fashion and style trends that emanated out from the spirit of their movement. Through this, Their legacy has been sustained in many ways, but not least through the styles of modern subcultures. Whilst the Sex Pistols and punk culture were by no means anywhere near the first subculture or the first to stand against the status quo, how they did it would greatly impact all of those that followed. Not only goths and emos, but also political movements, anti-fascist and fascist groupings would all absorb various elements of Sex Pistols-style punk. Angry youth are a market. Despite whether Malcolm McLaren, Vivian Westwood, Richard Branson and others believed in what the Sex Pistols were doing and what they came to represent, their investment into this subculture showed a business acumen and foresight. Investing in rebellion can pay dividends. To be honest, That's not an incredibly punk way to approach things. 
In fact, the meaning of the Sex Pistols has been something fought over greatly between McLaren and Leiden and the other members. Early on, McLaren positioned himself as the great master manipulator who had created the band and the trend, using extravagant feelings of anti-establishmentism to create a fashion style and clothing that he could sell at his shop. Indeed, much of the punk style that grew out of this movement is accredited to Vivian Westwood and McLaren and what they sold at their shop. Ripped clothes and offensive imagery or slogans are all styles that fluctuate in and out of trend to this day. Even now, in some Western countries at least, it is difficult to buy a pair of jeans that are not torn or worn, or both. This is a lasting impact of what grew out of the British punk movement. The Sex Pistols weren't the first punk rock band, but they went harder, and their songs were more simplistic, and to many they were more meaningful. To drive home the lasting impressions of this product today, when major and mainstream pop stars wear outlandish hairdos or offensive clothing and when they do and say things that cause uproar or fury to the public or within the establishment, they are just stepping meekly onto a path that the Sex Pistols tore down in a youthful blind rage that also just didn't give a fuck over 40 years ago. According to McLaren, he created and sold that. In 1980, he made a film called The Great Rock and Roll Swindle, which tells the rise of the band as his genius Cash for Chaos scan. Leiden refused to have anything to do with the film, although other members did take part. Who also took part was Sting, in what was his first acting appearance. It's terrible. In 2000, Leiden and the other members made their own film, called The Filth and the Fury, to answer and rebut McLaren's from 20 years before. Leiden has little time for McLaren, or his perspective. He said, in fact, quote, Malcolm and Vivian were really a pair of shysters. They would sell anything to any trend that they could grab onto. End quote. The Filth and the Fury is made using a lot of archival footage, including much that had never been seen before, such as of Sid Vicious, the band's bassist, who died of a heroin overdose in 1979. It generally gives a great insight into the temperament and spirit of these youth. At the beginning, they were genuinely rejecting the status quo. But with the fame and publicity that they had garnered, they toured around and they got sucked up into a world of selling tickets and performing as a sellable product. The passion and the drive behind their origin became non-existent. In particular, during their final ever concert in San Francisco, it is clear that Leiden has had enough. He crouches on the ground during their final tune, titled No Fun. It was an apt song to finish with, as Leiden's face shows how bored and uninterested he is. For the last minute of the song, he simply repeats the words, No fun, this is no fun, at all. Finally, the band finishes. Leiden laughs, almost to himself, before asking the crowd, Ah, ever get the feeling you've been cheated? Good night. Perhaps Leiden saw where this was going. They were starting to make a lot of money, although McLaren was withholding it all from Leiden and Sid Vicious. But sponsorships and deals would start rolling in. 
Perhaps Leiden foresaw a future where he would be on TV advertisements, selling meaningless products like, I don't know, toasters or soft drink or butter. He and the band might become the public faces of an anti-authority sentiment that was a mere facade and used only for consumerism. He said of the evolution of punk, quote, All those garbage, trashy bands basically all saying, yeah, we're a punk band, wrecked it outright. It became acceptable, absorbed back into the system. The shitstem, end quote. Herein lies the contradiction within these original punk rockers' movement. When you've based your identity on being a rejection of and reaction against the mainstream and that proves to be popular, suddenly your movement itself becomes the mainstream. At that point, you're not rebelling against anything. You've become a parody of everything you once stood for. You've got no real choice but to then either stop or just sell out completely. Perhaps because the Sex Pistols chose to end their rampage so early is the reason why their story still resonates today. Apart from having seen them at a couple of reunion shows, we largely still identify them with the outrageousness and force of emotional outburst that was their youth. Their inscription into social and music history continues to burn as a torch for all subsequent statements of rebellion to any establishment. Unlike the way more talented Rolling Stones, who are now old men pretending to still be young and hip, prancing around on the stage as they have for the last 40 years, the Sex Pistols will always be the young, talentless rebels who just said fuck you to everything and everyone. The Sex Pistols were real. What they said and did were real. They will always shine as this light for angry young teenagers out there who feel disenfranchised, powerless, and hankering for an outlet. But their unique style of rebellion has now been done. It will take something completely different to shock the world the way that God Save the Queen and Anarchy in the UK did in the 70s. But the basic principles that drove the pistols are arguably still there. When everything in the world is shit, why not shit all over the world in your own individual way and see what happens? Because otherwise, to quote the pistols themselves, there's no future for you. Thanks for listening to Stuff What You Tell Me. We are a punk rock, anti-establishment, anti-authority DIY podcast. We are not going to sell out yet, but we are open to offers. So feel free to contact us via our website at www.stuffwhatyoutellme.com. This has been a production by Julian Smith and Joe Wegasani.